just in, in, incredibly satisfying <laughs> to see uh, three decades of work go into you know, benefits for patients all over the world. Matthias Jörp is a physician, a scientist, and the chief executive officer of Helmholtz Munich. After over a decade in the United States, first at Eli Lilly and then at the University of Cincinnati, in 2011, Trupp was drawn back to Germany by what he refers to as a perfect storm. A storm whose elements included a chance to run the Helmholtz Diabetes Center in his native Munich and a prestigious Alexander von Humboldt professorship at the Technical University of Munich. Trupp's contributions to the field of obesity and diabetes were recognized this year with the American Diabetes Association's Bantig Medal. He was the award's youngest recipient since its establishment in 1941. Trupp and his collaborators tackled a seemingly intractable problem, obesity. Two decades later, he's one of the rare researchers who can look back on a road that started with basic research in mice and led up to new therapies for patients. It took interdisciplinary collaboration, technical breakthroughs, a new understanding of physiology, and ultimately an entirely novel approach to treating patients. It's a story the Helmholtz Pioneer Campus, Helmholtz Munich's innovation campus, strives to reproduce at scale, creating an environment where new technologies in everything from imaging to AI to new model systems are combined to tackle today's seemingly intractable problems in biomedicine. This is Bioengineering the Future of Medicine, the Helmholtz Pioneer Campus podcast. The vision for the Pioneer Campus had been fueled by a number of thoughts, which which all uh, then became sort of shaped up as, as one vision in the end. One was, I was very impressed with Janelia Farm, the Howard Hughes uh, Next Generation uh, Campus and the spirit there. The second was that my own experience as, as a young physician scientist in Germany uh, was, you know, not, not, not ideal. And I uh, was always thinking, well, what if I would have had a different environment that I later found in the United States? And I wanted to sort of try to see if we can establish some of that spirit, some of that environment for the next, next, next generation of scientists today in, in, in Germany with the Pioneer Campus. And, uh, maybe more importantly, the interdisciplinary spirit that, um, had been driving the success of Richard and my joint team operation, uh, bridging between chemistry, physiology, pharmacology, and medicine. That was something I wanted to be part of, of that spirit in that campus. And it, it really, in the end, uh, reflects what Hamilton von Helmholtz had been standing for, interdisciplinary work between uh, f physics and chemistry and medicine and, and physiology. Now, today, I think... We can even go a step further, and and that is a little bit how we recruit individuals into that pioneer campus group leaders, individuals that that basically uh, personify that interdisciplinary spirit in their own uh, research. These these folks, when I think about them, um, you know, Gankui, for example, or Matthias Meyer, you could even say, oh, that's a biologist. Oh no, that's a chemist. Oh, this is a physicist. They sort of do several of these things and you can't really put them in a specific uh, corner. And there's, there's another um, aspect. I'm convinced that also, again, based on my experience, we need to open, um, be open to interactions with biotech and with big pharma, with big tech. 
in academia uh, if we really want to offer solutions that matter for society based on our um, basic research. Um, that doesn't mean we have, you know, to sort of follow what they tell us to do. Uh, we don't do fee for service, but we need to understand where is unmet need, uh, what's possible, what are the tools that we need. So based on that, we also have uh, entrepreneurs and residents on that Pioneer campus. We have startup companies going into one entire floor. You know, so academic groups living with uh, biotech startups door to door. Um, so overall, that embedded then into the entire Helmholtz Center, where there's a diabetes center next door, there's the German mouse clinic next door, there's the biorepository of a, a national cohort of, of epidemiological work next door. That, to me, offers an environment that I always wanted to have when I was a young scientist. And I hope, you know, this, this is offering the opportunities that uh, next generation researchers today are looking for. Richard refers to Chubb's longtime collaborator, chemist Richard DeMarkey. Years later, the Journal of Clinical Investigation would refer to the duo as the Masters of Metabolism. We'll come back to him soon. Chubb started out as a physician, a clinical endocrinologist in Munich, when he came across a paper from Jeffrey Friedman's lab describing the cloning of the mouse obese gene and its human homologue, a gene named leptin. I had spent a day in, in clinical work, like, you know, most, most days, as a young doctor and uh, came back to my home in the university hospital, which was my lab, where I had done thesis work and had my colleagues. And, um, you know, there was always something to do with the evening and I'll finish an essay, um, uh, write a paper or something. And um, I, I remember that being a, a great uh, feeling that there was a home within the medical environment uh, with your team in the, in the lab. So, and, and, you know, frequently there were papers, uh, out there, you know, at the coffee table and the coffee machine is always where you meet as a young scientist and, you know, we're hanging out and somebody brought that paper and said, Hey, had you seen this? Um, I remember it as if, as if it were today, uh, there's a new hormone and there's a new endocrine organ. Oh my God. So, um, you read the paper and discussed it and, yeah, that was indeed the moment where I thought, well, this is, this is it. You know, this is the, the best moment to, um, you know, leave clinical medicine and, uh, find a postdoctoral fellowship where I can learn more about these types of molecular networks and how to make drugs. You went a bit off the normal postdoc track in the sense that you went to a company. You went to Eli Lilly uh, for the postdoc. So how did that jump happen? How did you find that opportunity? Yeah, well, th thinking back, uh, whatever, almost uh, 30 years now, um, there were discussions on that because my, my colleagues you know, that also did thesis work on the same hallway in the lab, they all went, as was tradition, um, to start a postdoc at famous academic institutions, you know, Harvard and Oxford and Stanford and so on. And I, I was warned that uh, if I would go into industry for a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, that would be perceived in academia as a stigma and, you know, the, the dark side and, um, you, you never come back from that and so on. But I was convinced that, uh, this was what my path was because, um, the Eli Lilly research labs where I went were the only place in the world back then where they could actually make uh, soluble, effective uh, leptin molecules. So I thought, well, that's the place to be. I want to learn about this. Also, um, it was my desire, ambition from the beginning 
to not only, you know, decipher mechanisms and publish papers, uh, but in the end, develop a drug, you know, find something that works against obesity um, or diabetes. Because I saw that pandemic, um, you know, increasing and increasing and us not being able to do anything about it. So my um, hope was that in that environment, I'd learn more about these novel hormones and I'd also learn how to make drugs. And I wasn't entirely wrong. When he set out to do a postdoc at Eli Lilly, Matthias Chup fully intended to return to treating patients. Although he never did go back to the clinic, Chup remained and remains very much involved in clinical medicine and medical education. At around the time he left Munich for Lilly, leptin, the hormone whose discovery had lured Matthias into full-time research, was proving to be a disappointment in clinical trials. As the New York Times summarized in 1999, in humans, it is not the panacea that some obesity researchers and patients had hoped for. I wasn't as frustrated as, as it may seem with the uh, discovery that there was leptin resistance because you sort of had seen it coming. My postdoc mentor, um, Mark Hyman at Lilly, he was part of a paper published in the Indian Journal, I remember, uh, where they had already shown that you know, leptin levels were actually high in human obesity. Now, that looked a lot like insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. And, you know, we, we really didn't think you just make leptin and then you treat obesity. That was not a, a sudden shock. Um, but it was so exciting to learn that there's actual molecules and genes that are regulating our body weight and appetite. Because until then, there was all, you know, willpower and behavior and discipline and so on. Um, now, the, the Gwellin discovery uh, also didn't happen overnight. Um, we were looking for uh, an, a leptin opponent. We were, it turns out, looking in the wrong place. So I was doing differential display, which was a method back then, in, in, the, in, in the mouse hypothalamus, looking for a, a hunger factor. And then we also observed closely, you know, what other uh, molecules are there. And when we saw that uh, Kojima and Kangava showed, uh, published an elegant work on uh, ghrelin, we thought, oh, this is an interesting factor. We don't believe it's that important for growth hormone secretion as they did. So we had, interestingly, the growth hormone secretagogue receptor, which turns out later is the ghrelin receptor, as one of our targets for the hunger hormone. Now, that gave us a hint. Uh, so we quickly made ghrelin, and that was, again, an advantage of being in that environment. Everybody was helpful. There was no competition because I was the academic postdoctoral fellow in a pharmaceutical environment, and I could make my own ghrelin with a peptide synthesizer, which, you know, a technician was happy to show me. So we could quickly do these experiments and see that, indeed, you inject ghrelin in mice or rats, you get uh, increased appetite, more food intake, increased fat mass, and the best moment I remember was um, taking the first radioimmunoassay that was available uh, from a company called Linko and measuring ghrelin levels before and after fasting and feeding animals. It went up and down, showing that, you know, this could be the endogenous hunger hormone. And then that all went into, into that paper. Yeah, the, the work of two years, still relatively fast for academic sort of uh, timelines, but uh, it didn't happen overnight. The highly influential paper published in Nature in 2000 has a self-explanatory title, Graylin Induces Adiposity in Rodents. 
Graylin was also an attractive target for drug development to treat obesity. Perhaps blocking Graylin would succeed where activating the leptin pathway had failed. If you want to make a drug, Chop has said, the first thing you need is a chemist. At Lilly, the physician-turned-scientist would meet a key collaborator to fill this role, chemist Richard DeMarkey. While Matthias was the academic postdoctoral fellow at Lilly, DeMarkey was a vice president. The first culture shock came when I left academia at Munich University Medicine as a young fellow and got into corporate environment at Eli Lilly in Indianapolis. I mean, you can't imagine a more different culture. You know, it was the U.S., it was the Midwest, and it was, it was very corporate, uh, very formal. On the other hand, it was very American, um, where, especially in, in research, there was a way a flatter hierarchy. So everybody was, you know, first name base, uh, including the CEO of Lilly, back then Sidney Torell. And I met him and I said, hey, hi, hi, Sidney. And it was, hi, Matthias, how you doing? So that, that was the, the, the culture. And, and, and second, you know, Richard's personality has, has always been one um, that is very infectious and passionate about science and uh, not at all about hierarchy. Actually, very different than I was used to from a university hospital where the head professor is somebody you, you know, you don't want to really talk to unless you're being asked something. <laughs> so, um, so it might have been the opposite. And, and, um, there is always serendipity in these developments in academic careers. And Richard and I just uh, recognized quickly that we share a vision, we share a passion, and we're um, both interested in doing something that could be transformative, you know, really uh, thinking out of the box toward a new set of classes of compounds that could overcome obesity. Uh, a lot of lessons we learned from ghrelin and leptin and uh, that nutrient sensing had something to do with something that's important, you know, incoming nutrients. How does the brain know when to be hungry, when not to be hungry? And ghrelin plays a part in that. So gut, stomach seemed to be us to be one conduit that was part of it. But in the end, the brain is the organ that matters. That was clear to us because, you know, this is where appetite is being regulated and controlled. This is where in the end, a lot of peripheral organs are orchestrated in terms of their energy metabolism. And when you look at the genetics of obesity, most of the, you know, single nucleotide polymorphisms and so on and, and the hits that we have from epidemiology, they all relate to factors that are expressed in the brain or have their function in the brain. If, if you want to cut it really short, science says obesity is a brain disease. Now, targeting the brain turns out to be not trivial. Single factors don't do a whole lot, so it seems to be a pattern, a mosaic of things that the brain recognizes. And that also seems to be playing a role in gastric bypass. Um, and, you know, whatever gastric bypass does, it then changes signaling to the brain or what's happening in the brain. And, you know, parallel experience we had collected from you know, CB1 receptor um, uh, targeting compounds um, were all telling us, well, making small molecules that directly interfere with some brain synapses or circuits are just going to be never free of side effects enough to uh, become a, a good drug. 
because uh, you know our pharmacological means are so limited we we cannot say we want to go to this and this and this neuron but not to the others um but and this was our trick then if we use mother nature's toolkit uh, the gut hormones that are designed to find their receptors in the brain that are responsible for affecting metabolism, nothing else, we might have a chance. But we need a pattern. We need a combination. And if we have a combination, it's just a nightmare of going through clinical trials with two or three or four compounds in a cocktail. And what do you do to use a two or three chamber system for administration? So the next ambition was make a single molecule that sort of unifies several action profiles of hormones into itself. And so that's that's where we spend years then between Richards and my lab going back and forth and figuring out that, hey, maybe the glucagon family of peptides is what we want to go with. Um, maybe uh, glucagon is a good uh, starting point, but we want to activate other gut hormone receptors. So again, the the mission, the guiding strategy for us was for, you know, the last two decades, activating several gut hormone receptors in the brain that would give us uh, metabolic benefits and achieve that with a single molecule, you know, either a dual or a triple hormone hybrid. Yeah, that, that was where it went. So if, if at that period I'd, I'd opened a, a textbook, um, I probably would have said, hey, glucagon is a terrible idea as a, as a starting point. It's probably going to do the exact opposite of what you want. So why at the time did you think I would be wrong? Well, you, you wouldn't have been the only one, right? So we have been warned uh, repeatedly by lots of folks and said, well, don't do that. I mean, the, it is you're embarrassing yourself. You know, you're going to damage your academic career if you even try that. The whole pharmaceutical industry is looking for a glucagon receptor antagonist. But we, we sort of insisted because Richard and I had been digging into all the literature and had started doing experiments with new compounds that Richard made, glucagon receptor activators that were longer acting and more stable and potent. And we had concluded that Glucagon receptor activation does things that we want. It helps with promoting satiety. It helps with, you know, driving energy expenditure, burning calories, lots of great stuff. Sure. And textbook knowledge is still true. Uh, glucagon increases blood glucose. And it's the counter regulatory hormone to insulin. Now, but if that sort of diabetogenic uh, drive of glucagon could be blocked, overcome by something else that we couple glucagon to, and then maybe we can get the best of both worlds, right? Having like a GLP and incretin help us with insulin secretion and, and positive effects on metabolism, appetite, body weight. But at the same time, have glucagon synergize with that weight loss drive and that satiety increase and burning of calories. While if we balance it right, the increase in blood glucose would disappear. It was a big bet. It was, you know, gambling sort of, uh, high risk, high gain. But it, it worked out. You know, of course, you, you don't just start with these labor-intensive single molecules generation studies that take years. We started with co-infusing things, right? Um, GLP-1 receptor activators, glucagon activators separately together. And we saw, you know, sub-threshold doses together would give us an effect. And that was where we wanted to go. And 
then made the first uh, dual agonists that were ever uh, made. And I think it was 2009 where we published the first one, a GLP-glucagon receptor dual agonist. And you know, several of several of this kind are now in clinical trials, entering phase three and doing things. The latest I've seen was from Beringer, uh, a compound that in phase two, I think, had 18% weight loss and improved blood glucose. So seems to be true in humans what we what we observed in mice are you directly involved with the development of any of these drugs no so we had made our first versions of that we published it we started the mechanism the second one the dual agonist of GIP and GLP you know another gut hormone uh, more on the incretin side not having the glucagon liabilities paired with GLP again that we took as far as a, a phase 1b trial together with partners at Roche and Novo Nordisk. And, and we saw that it worked principally in humans, but you know, these studies are so expensive. I mean, you, you almost can't do it uh, based on academia. That it was just a 12, 13-week study. We saw that it principally worked. But then, you know, when you go further, you, you really need to rely on Big Pharma to, you know, take this over. And uh, we, we're so delighted that, you know, even though we don't own any of that now and everybody makes their own version, which is relatively easy to do, about a dozen of these dual and now triple receptor agonists are in clinical trials, and one of them is even FDA approved, and, and they all seem to be performing so well uh, that if nothing unexpected happens, they may become the standard treatment for obesity and diabetes in the near future. Chope and the field of obesity have come a long way since his days as a clinical endocrinologist in Munich, when all he could really do for his patients was recommend diet and lifestyle adjustments and hope for the best. The game changer was the realization that obesity was a complex disease in which the brain plays a central role, a new paradigm in pathophysiology that required a new approach, the simultaneous targeting of multiple molecular pathways. An early guiding principle for Chope and his collaborators was to attempt to mimic the results of bariatric surgery. You went stepwise through also gastric banding and then single, single agonists and dual agonists and triple agonists. And how close uh, would you say you are now to fully uh, pharmacologically reproducing uh, the uh, gastric bypass surgery with, with a pill? We, you meaning the entire field, the, the clinical uh, development of the field. Oh, yeah. I think um, it's frequently um, sort of made a relationship that is potentially somewhat exaggerated that, you know, this injection of a triple agonist is like a gastric bypass uh, in, in form of a medicine. Um, that's not entirely correct. I mean, of course, all of this and many of my colleagues' research was inspired by the relatively quick metabolic benefits after um, bariatric surgery is done. So um, for those of the folks listening that aren't uh, daily having interactions with these types of surgeries and, and, and then these outcomes, um, that has puzzled researchers for a while now that before significant amounts of weight have been lost, um, a gastric bypass is already causing significant metabolic benefits. Now, if that is really because something has been done to the neuroendocrine axis of gut hormones interacting with the brain, I believe that's part of it, but it's difficult to prove. Because you have confounding factors such as, well, these patients are now in a hospital, right? And they do what the doctor says, 
they have a different diet, they eat less and um, they go through the stress of the surgery and so on. Um, some of that may also lead to a negative energy balance. So it, it is something to be, you know, ca carefully examined over the, the years to come. Um, certainly there is an inspiration there. And certainly some of the hormones we are, the hormone pathways we are sort of enhancing are seeming to be changed in a similar direction after baratic surgery. But mm, to go as far and say we are really mimicking a gastric bypass here, I think would be, would be not, not quite uh, right. Um, still, you know, this, this has been sort of a parallel path. And I think we shouldn't underestimate how much good was done and is being done with bariatric surgeries. Patients with morbid obesity that had no other option, no other solution were really helped. I mean, this is a life or death decision at some point, you know, with all the cardiovascular risks and, and so on that come with morbid obesity. Um, so, uh, we, we should be really grateful and, um, uh, aware of the fact that it's important that we have these options. Now, in the future, it might indeed be the case that some of these highly efficient obesity drugs um, should be tried first before you go toward a decision to have surgery being done that's highly invasive, irreversible, not risk-free, um, that will always have its place, but I'm sure it will sort of become sort of a a, a second choice over time. It's just from looking uh, from from outside the field, it, it looks like a, a fantastic uh, progress on the soluble factors communicating between the peripheral tissues and the brain. Um, but it, it seems to be missing just the afferent signals uh, through through the nervous system itself, which I mean, if, as you say, this is essentially a brain disease, that that chunk of it um, is, of course, much less tractable uh, uh, by by just producing soluble mediators, which is what we're good at uh, in in terms of, of drug ability. But it, but it is incredible progress. Indeed. I mean, we've just now seen last week, I'm just back now from the American Diabetes Association meeting where uh, phase two and phase three trials have been disclosed. Uh, a phase two trial of the uh, triple agonist version of Eli Lilly. Um, we have published the, the drug class of triple agonists in uh, 2015. And now we already have the first phase two data of one version of that. Retetrotide is the name. Um, and uh, they show in 11 months already 24, 25% weight loss with a continuing trajectory that points toward Likely phase three trials in 18 months, landing at 28, 30% weight loss. I mean, this is basically where gastric bypass is, right, in terms of uh, efficacy. It's amazing. Uh, something thought to be impossible when I started, uh, leaving me on it and trying to find obesity drugs. Even, even I didn't think that was possible, and I tried to be enthusiastic about it. Um, the other data that um, really stuck in my mind now is that one of the dual agonists, the um, tercepatide Mujaro, that's already uh, FDA approved for diabetes at least, um, seems to be resolving diabetes in 50% of the diabetes patients. I mean, they have normal glycemia uh, after being treated with tercepatides. Also, I mean, that probably has to do with the weight loss as well and direct impact on on insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity, but has has it's never been seen. So, you know, there there is something magic about these these combinations, um, and I'm sure we'll see much more of that. And it's just in, in, incredibly um, 
um, satisfying <laughs> to see uh, three decades of work go into you know, benefits for patients all over the world. Your collaborator, Dr. Demarquis, had an interesting phrase. He said, the body will defend its weight. Um, so once you set a new weight, do you expect that that patients might be able to come off the drugs? Uh, yeah, well, we wish, but uh, I think Richard is unfortunately right. Um, everything we know points to the fact that we're not curing obesity, we're controlling body weight. Um, so it's likely like with, I don't know, uh, ACE inhibitors or beta blockers for blood pressure. That's not a bad comparison where combination treatment can regulate most blood pressure uh, issues, but the disease isn't gone. And when you stop treatment, it will go back up. And same with body weight. Um, there's a lot more that needs to be done clinically, but um, everybody is expecting based on the data we have that if you, if you get off the drug, body weight will go back up. Um, so the issue that uh, drives increased body weight and increased um, appetite and hunger in the brain, that isn't gone. And I'm sure that's something we hopefully can address in the future. But for now, just controlling body weight gives us the chance to prevent the development of type 2 diabetes. You know, that, that incidence and, and prevalence of type, type 2 diabetes will go down if, you know, if there wasn't an obesity pandemic, we would not have a type 2 diabetes pandemic of that size. And accomplishing that gives us time um, helps the patients and gives us time to really go to the roots of everything. Um, but um, we, we're not there yet. We haven't found a way and nobody knows a way how to really cure obesity. Many promising drug candidates failed in the obesity arena. And the successful approaches, like the double and triple agonists created by Chirp, DeMarkey and their collaborators, were once considered long shots. Now, at the Helmholtz Pioneer Campus, Matthias is creating the conditions for a new generation of researchers to draw a bead on big targets. We are encouraging everybody to do, you know, high-risk, high-gain studies and um, that failure is part of uh, science. And, you know, if, if everything would come out uh, based on your hypothesis as you predict, then we wouldn't have to do experiments. <laughs> so the, the, the culture with our key performance indicators is really standing for that, right? Um, we are not... Um, but give people time, you know, sometimes it takes five years, sometimes it takes seven years. Um, and if you're just looking for, you know, impact factors on papers every 12 months and uh, you close a lab because somebody hasn't published two papers this year, then you're never going to go uh, and see these, these transformative breakthroughs. Um, now, still, Germany is not the U.S. and we've got to be aware of that. Um, the um, environment for investors is, is way more difficult. Um, for example, if, if, if you as, as a venture capitalist invest in a biotech startup and it goes belly up, um, you can't do a tax write-off in the United States of your investment. You can't do that in Germany. And, you know, that, that's a significant aspect for, for those who want to be active in that area. Um, we're working closely and talking a lot with, you know, uh, politicians and government officials and folks in industry to step by step, you know, remove things that are in the way, um, remove pitfalls. One clinical problem that is in dire need of a transformative breakthrough is Alzheimer's disease, which Matthias has provocatively referred to as the diabetes of the brain. 
as as you know, it has served had served us well to think out of the box and make sort of bold bold statements like the one with you know is Alzheimer's the diabetes of of, of the brain. But um, I I do want to be respectful of my colleagues in that field. That is a very very complicated challenge, and I think we got really lucky in one respect that the mouse models we used with you know high fat high sugar diet induced obesity and insulin resistance in mice was such a predictive and good model for obesity and type 2 diabetes. Everything we did in mice basically works exactly like that in the clinic. Now, that helps tremendously, and that really doesn't seem to be the case with, you know, Alzheimer's or, or Parkinson's models. It is way more tricky to have good models where you then, um, you know, in, investigate mechanisms and study drugs. Um, so just to point out, um, luck is always part of, part of the equation. There, there is a strong focus on on building platforms like Organ on a Chip um, uh, for for some of the groups. Uh, as you've, uh, as you know, the the FDA has recently moved away from from animal testing requirements in 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 drug development. And one thing that strikes me looking at at your at the science you've done in in the last twenty years uh, is that very little of it would have been predictable by studying anything in isolation. It's a very much a, a multi-organ interaction a problem. It uh, it moves a peripheral problem to the brain. It involves the adipose tissue and stomach and so forth. Does that concern you that uh, that we may be uh, losing focus on, on the complexity of physiology? Yeah, yeah, that, that does concern me because we are very committed to minimizing animal model-based research as much as possible. That is very important and we, we should, we should never, you know, trivialize how much attention needs to go into, uh, respectfully treating animals for, you know, creating medicines to um, improve patients' lives. But not everything can be mirrored, at least today, um, with, you know, organoids, organoids on chips, even organoids connected to each other. We have the dream of building a humanoid on a chip uh, with, you know, stem cells and, and so on. And we're far away from that. Uh, now, what uh, our version for the future is to combine, not even longitudinally, because that takes so long, but sort of simultaneously studies uh, that go from, you know, C. elegans and, and drosophila um, to um, organoids uh, that are real organoids with different cell types in sort of a 3D structure based on blueprints that we get from cleared tissues uh, and, and mass specs. So the next level of organoids, but we need them, the, the mouse models and, and rat models as well as, you know, for the, the genetic background that we can manipulate and the physiological aspects that you mentioned, you know, complex behaviors like food intake cannot be studied in cells. How, how would that work? Also, if you Google it, you would think, well, they're brain organoids. Why don't we study the brain in, in that? Well, you know, a real honest version is if you take uh, a bunch of screws and, and, uh, you know, wires and throw it on the street and then you say that's your new car. That's sort of a brain organoid compared to a brain. We are so far away from anything that resembles a functioning brain. And then it's interaction with all the different organs that, you know, this, this will be decades if it, if it ever works. So to, to really discover drugs that save tens of millions of lives, like likely the dual and triple agonists will now do. They will prevent cancer. They will prevent cardiovascular disease. They will prevent diabetes. 
they will overcome obesity. That was only possible because we tested them in diet-induced and insulin-resistant mice. It would have never, we have, would have never discovered it and Lily would have never had tirsepatide monjaro without these, these studies. Uh, if, you know, this was only be tested in, in organisms because these answers just weren't there. At the same time, to, to complete our version for the future or our vision for the future is that epidemiology, I think, is, is very important to always have that human uh, compass and look at large populations of individuals. You know, what's, what is the genetic situation? Um, what are biomarkers so that we can avoid any unnecessary uh, animal study? And long before we go into the first clinical trial, which is then, of course, necessary at some point, uh, we know a lot more about the human situation that minimizes risks for the per first patients to receive drugs, but it also maximizes speed in developing things. And it again minimizes the use of animal models, which is, of course, our goal. Matthias Chirp is the chief executive officer of Helmholtz Munich, but he has not stepped back from research. The Chirp Lab continues to push the envelope of metabolic science and medicine. What's your lab doing now that you're excited about? <laughs> well, so one thing we just talked about, right? Um, how about a maintenance therapy, right? I mean, these dual and triple agonists are doing a great job, but they're pretty potent drugs and they induce a major negative energy balance. So, so once weight has come off you know, after 18 months, maybe two years, and you are, you know, with normal weight and maybe normal glucose levels, do you really need to take uh, a triple agonist for the rest of your life? Or is there at least a version of a maintenance therapy that I personally think could involve leptin? Because now leptin sensitivity is back, or could be a monoagonist uh, to maintain that uh, and 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 not constantly push that hard with these intense multi-receptor activations in the brain. The second thing is, you know, it's great to have these general medicines that uh, can hopefully stop, reverse a pandemic, but they're not personalized medicines yet, and we know that there are subpopulations of patients that suffer from different versions of this metabolic syndrome. So what we have been working on, Richard and I, is developing compounds that deliver small molecules that are put on peptides to certain organs that gives us a little bit more precision in terms of targeting fatty liver disease or to in, indeed the hypothalamus more or the brainstem, uh, targeting more the pancreas, more the adipose tissue. Um, so a, a set of precision metabolic medicines that can help us uh, to, in the future, uh, offer more personalized treatments, for which we need more personalized diagnostics. So these are two of the things we're excited about. The third one is, you know, with what we learned from these dual and triple agonists, there, we believe, may be mechanisms that we can explore to treat other diseases, right? Um, how about neurodegeneration? Is is there something there um, that can be translated? Is what we think happens in the hypothalamus for obesity happening in the hippocampus for some other disorders? And you know, this is uh, way way less concrete, but I think worth exploring that other diseases can be targeted in a similar manner. Sidney Brenner once said that progress in science depends on new techniques, new discoveries, and new ideas, probably in that order. 
Matthias Chup and his colleagues at Helmholtz Munich and its pioneer campus are applying this maxim to a range of scientific and medical challenges, from fertilization to aging. Visit our webpage or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to learn about exciting new discoveries, events, and opportunities. Thank you for listening.